Hey listeners, it's Haley here, and I have some incredibly exciting news to share with you all. After years of reflecting on my journeys and experiences in the nonprofits, I am finally putting pen to paper, well, typing, and writing a book about my time in Malawi. In 2012, I embarked on an adventure to start a nonprofit in a small village living alone with no water or electricity. Through countless challenges, I managed to build a successful business that continues to make a difference today. This book is not just a memoir. It's a powerful story of resilience, passion, and the strength of community. I delve into the highs and lows, the lessons learned, and the unforgettable moments that have shaped who I am today. Whether you're in the nonprofit sector, considering starting one, or simply love a good story, this book is for you. I'm thrilled to announce that the pre-orders are now open. You can reserve your copy today through the link in the bio, which will be supporting me and this project, helping to bring my story to life. Your encouragement means the world to me and has been a driving force throughout this entire process. Thank you for being a part of this journey. Are you a nonprofit professional who's feeling overwhelmed and burnt out? Well, welcome to the Lead with Heart podcast. I am your host, Haley Cooper. On this podcast, we will share stories of leadership, courage, and empathy that'll help you learn to take care of yourself, your staff, organization, and community. You will hear from nonprofit leaders who have been in your shoes and have learned best practices to raise more revenue and make a greater impact. Let's thrive together. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Lead with Heart podcast. This is your host, Haley Cooper, and I am so honored to have Dimple on the podcast today. We have so much in common, and she just has an amazing background in human-centered leadership, and she is the founder of Roots in the Clouds. And today, we are going to be talking a lot about trauma-informed leadership. So thank you so much, Dimple, for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I always like to start with this question, your topic of the service before self and wanting to give to others, but we forget to serve ourselves. So can you talk a little bit more about like how you really got into humanitarian work and is there a personal experience or story that relates to the work that you do now? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Yeah. So one of the things I learned through the process of writing this book was really understanding how so many of what I call our shaping stories. So these are the things that they're events, they're experiences that we had from often from childhood, but then throughout our lives that actually create the lens through which we then experience the world. And so for me, my own personal story, I had my my dad had suffered from some mental illness, like bipolar disorder. We had some domestic violence in the house. We Mm -hmm. had a lot of displacement and moving and things like that. And so All of these things really shaped my own views. They impacted my nervous system around what felt safe, things like that. But the flip side of that was I got to meet a lot of people who helped us during those times. And so Mm. I think that really shaped my own narrative about what I wanted to do in the world later. And I felt very strongly about wanting to somehow give back and support people. And so that's really what led me into this path of service. And 
I didn't know exactly what I would be doing. And I talk about in the book, when I finished college, I took what I call the easy route and went to law school because I was too scared to just go out and try and, and do something new. But, but even through that, I was figuring out like how I wanted to serve. And that ultimately ended up leading me to initially working at the attorney general's office in Denver, where I was part of a unit that worked on representing the state in cases of where people were listed on the state central registry for abuse and neglect. But then I kept searching. I knew I wanted to do something that was more international, that was more human rights focused. And I ended up finding a job to work as an asylum officer. And so that's where you interview people who are seeking asylum in the United States. And I had no immigration background and thought there's no way I'm getting this job, which was my dream job on paper. And it turned out they were looking for attorneys because they felt like we had the skill sets to adjudicate cases like that. And it was an incredible opportunity. And I actually started in Orange County at the asylum office in Anaheim. And it just opened up a whole like new world of just really meaningful work. But it also, without me realizing it, had me sitting with my trauma day in, day out, because mm. I was literally listening to stories of other people's trauma that often mirrored a lot of my own. And so it actually led to things like experiencing vicarious trauma. And when I couldn't find the resources that I needed within my workplace to support me, I realized I had to do that for myself. And over time, I was able to then turn around and start providing those kinds of resources for my colleagues. And that's what led me into what I'm doing now, which is helping the helpers. That's so beautiful. And I just want to take a moment and reflect like how strong and courageous you are. And I'm just in, so inspired by your ability to turn something that happened to you into good for others. You saw this need and you saw that other people were experiencing it while you're experiencing it yourself, which had to have been so difficult to relive some of the things that happened to you. But you saw this need and you were able to turn it around for good to impact people. And a lot of the work that I do is in nonprofits. And would you mind just explaining a little bit more about what vicarious trauma is or secondhand trauma is and or compassion fatigue? Is there a difference between the three? And what does that look like? Yeah, thanks. That's another great question. So the terms are often used interchangeably, <laughs> but they are a little bit different. So vicarious trauma, basically, and secondary trauma uh, or secondary traumatic stress are both, they're basically where you are taking on the experiences of someone else's trauma. So for example, if when I was interviewing asylum seekers and refugees, as I listened to their stories of trauma the symptoms that they might have experienced, I was now experiencing as though I had experienced that trauma myself. And so this is very common in lines of work where you're helping other people or you're being exposed to other people's trauma. The difference is pretty subtle. So like secondary traumatic stress can happen with just one event, can lead you to experience the symptoms of someone else's trauma, whereas vicarious trauma is a buildup of trauma over time. And then compassion fatigue is really, it's similar, but it's, it's where, especially in these kinds of helping professions, where we just get to a point, we've all, many of us, I should say, have gotten to that point where we hit a wall, right? Like we're at home and someone in the family is just like upset about something and you're like, I just can't even help you right now. And so it's that feeling of, 
I have nothing else to give. Like I'm completely depleted. I've given everything I can to everybody else around me and especially the people I'm trying to serve and I just have nothing left. And that's really compassion fatigue. And the compassion fatigue is really dangerous in that it leads us to tell ourselves a lot of stories about how terrible we are as human beings mm. because it's it creates so much guilt because we see people suffering and we can't feel that sense of compassion that we normally would or it's in some way limited or whatever. And I just want to say for anyone listening, if you're experiencing this, there's nothing wrong with you and you are not a bad person. It's just we have to keep taking care of ourselves and keep refilling those that bucket for ourselves in order to keep showing up to serve. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing those subtle distinctions between the three. And I, yeah, I just want to reiterate and validate whoever is experiencing this. Again, there's nothing wrong with you. It is normal to feel this way and you're not alone. There are so many resources that can help you. But I first want to start by asking you, sometimes we get into these situations and we don't necessarily realize it. Or once we're in it, as we're experiencing compassion fatigue, we're feeling that amount of guilt and shame. What is the first step that someone can take to start investing in themselves and understanding what they're going through? Yeah. So part of the thing with these shaping stories, I always like to bring this back to the neurobiology because I think that helping people understand that this is all really based in science, right? It's Mm -hmm. not just... So for example, those kinds of shaping stories have created really deeply etched neural pathways in our brain. So if you think about, imagine like a fresh field of snow, and then imagine like a tractor driving through that and it creates those tire tracks, right? That's what's happened in our brains, like over decades of experiencing these same patterns and these same stories that we tell ourselves. We've created these neural networks that become our default reactions in certain situations. And so to me, the first thing that we can do is start to create some awareness around that. We call it mindful Mm -hmm. awareness. And so if we can start to notice our own internal stories that are coming up. So for example, when we're in a situation where we feel ourselves starting to get stressed out or angry or upset, starting to notice what was it that activated that response? And then what was my actual response. So I talk about in the book that there's five actual kind of nervous system responses, right? So we've all heard of fight or flight, but there's also freeze, fix, and fake. And so fight shows up as blame. It shows up as, it can show up as violence, criticism, judgment. And all of these things can be directed outwards towards others or towards ourselves. Flight is literally like getting up and leaving the situation, but it's also emotionally leaving the situation, right? So this is the part where we see a lot of addictions, anything to help us forget that we are in this space right now that doesn't feel good. But it's also the space in which we really struggle to make meaningful connections with other people. And then freeze is, again, it's that idea of like the deer cotton headlights. We're stuck. We can't make decisions. Fix is an if-then So we start telling ourselves things like, well, if I just worked harder, I'd be more valuable to my organization. Or if I was a better listener, then this person would love me or whatever. So it's like an if-then kind of thing. And we're trying to fix the situation rather than be with it as it is. And then fake is, this was one of my (laughs) go-tos for a long time, which is 
the perfectionist, right? So fake it till you make it. I'm not going to let anyone see my vulnerability. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to tell everyone I'm good. I'm fine. And we start to create these like standards for ourselves that are really tough to maintain. And so these are all actual survival reactions that we have. And so if we can notice again, what's activated that, what's my actual reaction, the more that we start to notice those patterns, the easier it becomes to then be able to say, okay, wait, I'm noticing what happened. I'm noticing where it's showing up in my body. And I'm noticing that this is what my reaction is. And if we can start to notice that, then we can start to actually shift it and start Mm -hmm. to create new neural pathways, which takes time. We have to do it over and over. But the mindful awareness is really the first step. And then the next part of that is self-compassion. Because I promise you that when you start going down this path, number one, you start noticing everything and then you're really hard on yourself. And for every two steps forward you take, you will backslide. And so in those moments of backsliding, again, just having that self-compassion and kindness for ourselves to so that we can keep moving forward. Yeah, I love how you frame that. And I'm a neuroscience geek, so I love always bringing it back to neurobiology and neuroscience. And I know from a standpoint, when we get activated, our amygdala gets activated and it takes over our prefrontal cortex. And in those moments where we're triggered, we're no longer able to collaborate, communicate, be creative. And those are fundamental things that we need to be able to carry out our work successfully. And so from a neuroscience standpoint, even that mindfulness awareness calms down our amygdala and we're able to think about those next steps. Because when we're caught in that cycle of being reactive or our amygdala is constantly going, we can't think ahead. We're so stuck in it. And so it just naming it, naming how you're feeling or that trigger or that automatic response or that belief allows you to see a future or Mm -hmm. at least take that first step to asking for help or whatever it may be. But it's just that it's not simple. No, I wouldn't say that. It's really hard. I've been doing it over and over again. And like you said, it is an act of self-compassion because you see it. You're like, well, I've been triggered this many times. Why is this still happening? And it is an act of self-compassion being like, oh, but I notice it quicker. Mm -hmm. I'm able to notice it and change it a little bit quicker. Yeah. And in the book, I, I love what you just said. I talk about notice, name, navigate right? So as soon as we notice it and we name it, then we can start to navigate through it. So Mm. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I just love that this idea of mindfulness awareness, navigating it, I say, pause, reflect, and choose Mm -hmm. how you want to show up, what that next step is. And that's funny. I was recording on someone else's podcast the other day and he was like, Haley, are you telling me that my childhood wounds or past wounds show up in how I approach fundraising? And I was like, yep. unfortunately, <laughs> yes, it it does. We all want to see, feel seen, valued, and heard. Yeah. And specifically, I was talking about fundraising. So anything that happened to our in our past regarding rejection, mm-hmm. if someone says something to us or we get rejected, we take that personally, get triggered, and that belief and those thoughts and our actions reflect those past stories. Exactly. Yeah, that's really well put. So you talk about humanitarian work and this idea of trauma-informed leadership. And 
I want to shift towards that because when I've been in nonprofits, most case managers have to be trained in a trauma-informed approach for their clients. But the mission does not include that same approach for the people that are delivering the services. So how can nonprofit organizations adopt this idea of a trauma-informed leadership to address occupational traumas and mental health challenges that are faced by people engaging in this work? Yeah. So I think we're talking about the same thing. I use a little bit of a different terminology because I talk about human-centered leadership, but human-centered leadership is also trauma-informed, right? Because it's this idea that we, number one, we focus on the whole human being. And I often say that we are whole human beings. We don't leave a piece of ourselves at the door when we come into work. But when even in these lines of work, like we are expected to compartmentalize ourselves in ways that are not natural to how we are, right? Like this is a holdover from the industrial revolution, which was all about efficiency. And it was all about creating like these conveyor belt type of things, right? Like we're just moving through the motions and doing the work. But especially when we're serving other human beings, it's messy and it's challenging and we're dealing with other people's emotions and things like that. And so we have to be able to be a, to, to acknowledge that and to have our workplaces acknowledge that. And so I talk about this idea of creating a holistic human-centered duty of care. And in most organizations, though, I have to say this week I'm learning it is not actually (laughs) as common as you would think, but in most organizations, they will focus on the physical health and safety of their staff, right? And that's the duty of care that they talk about. And I think that in order for organizations to really, number one, retain staff, which Staff retention is really important because when you think about the amount of money that's spent on training new staff, that's one thing. But the other piece of this is we're losing institutional knowledge because when you have staff that's not being retained, and that's important because if a staff member has been around for a while, they're going to be a lot more comfortable in like decision-making and in fostering those relationships with the, the people we're serving. Whereas when new people are coming in, there's still a pretty long period of adjustment and things like that. So This idea of creating a human-centered duty of care recognizes the whole human being and acknowledges that we need to actually protect the mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, and relational aspects of being human in the workplace. So it shouldn't just be that, well, we've ensured that you have a safe place to work, but there's all this other stuff happening and we have to be able to talk about it. So being able to normalize some of that. And so in this area of human-centered leadership and trauma-informed leadership, It is really about creating that connection and trust and psychological safety. And so when we talk about psychological safety, we're talking about creating workplaces where people show up as themselves and that they're not afraid to speak up, especially when they disagree with something or they have a different idea about how something should be. And they're not afraid that they're going to be shut down or in some way disregarded. And What I try to do when I work with leaders is help them understand the more that we can be proactive about this and create this kind of trust and psychological safety on our teams, the more likely it is that when we encounter a challenging event like the pandemic, for example, we're not scrambling now to try to figure out how to connect with people and how to support them because we already have built that foundation. And so now we're able to work through it together it's a lot more likely to help the organization sustain itself during those times of challenge and adversity, which are common in our lines of work. 
Hey there, podcast family. If you're like me and deeply committed to improving your leadership skills and fostering better connections with your team, I've got something truly amazing to share with you. I'm proud to introduce the EMC Masterclass, something I talk about often as a certified trainer. It's an incredible program developed by the renowned Dr. Lola Gershfield, an organizational psychologist and corporate emotional connection expert. You might remember her from a podcast episode where she shared invaluable insights into the world of emotional connection. Dr. Gershfeld's EMC Leaders courses are designed for anyone working with people, whether you're a manager, supervisor, team leader, educator, coach, mentor, or a team member. This program is truly for everyone looking to enhance their communication and collaboration skills to raise more revenue for their mission. Now, let me tell you why the EMC Masterclass is a game changer. Dr. Gershfeld's groundbreaking emotional connection process has been integrated into top universities' curriculum and recognized by international organizations like ICF, HRCI, and SHRM. Humans are wired to seek emotional safety, and when we feel safe, we're more likely to take risks, share innovative ideas, and collaborate effectively. The EMC process is the catalyst for creating that emotional safety within your team. The virtual EMC masterclass consists of eight modules with four hours of expertly recorded material, 13 quizzes to reinforce your learning, and a workbook filled with activities for offline practice and something I still refer to daily. Ready to become an emotional connection master? Dr. Gershfeld is offering an exclusive detail for our podcast listeners. Use the code LEADWITHHEART to enjoy a generous 10% discount on the EMC Masterclass. Head over to emcleaders.com and enroll in the EMC Masterclass today. Preach it from the mountaintops. (laughs) I wish more organizations took the time to really invest and realize that taking the time to invest in this human-centered approach to leadership actually helps you be better stewards of your money, helps you retain your staff and make a greater impact. And I think I talk a lot about on this podcast and I've had a few people talk about emotional connection and psychological safety. And I use my own framework and how I approach organizations to create that environment. But I would love to get your input on how organizations can really take the time to create that psychologically safe environment How can they make space for emotion and fear and allow people to speak up? Because this is hard work. Like you said, we're facing some of the hardest issues. We're hearing horrendous stories and there's a lot of fear. And I'll say this again on multiple podcasts of not showing up. Mm -hmm. If we don't show up, that person might still be on the street or might still be sex trafficked or might not get the green card they need to become a citizen of the United States. So there, there's so many factors and fears, but we're so quick to moving on or focusing on the outcome that we forget to make space for those fears. And again, like we said earlier, when we make space for those fears and create that environment, you actually become more productive. Mm-hmm. You become more collaborative, more creative, more innovative. So what is your approach to creating more psychologically safe environments? And I know that's a loaded question. <laughs> yeah. How much time do you have? <laughs> yeah, no. So, so 
So again, this idea of this duty of care, there's four pillars to this. So first is normalizing and addressing all these different kinds of occupational mental health challenges and trauma, right? And then second, and this is this heart hits closer to the question of psychological safety, is is shifting from metrics-driven cultures to human-centered cultures. Mm. And so again, metrics are super important, right? Like why do we have organizations? We have we have certain goals and metrics we need to meet. But when those are the only things that are driving your policymaking, it becomes a problem. And so I'll talk about that in a second. And then the third thing is supporting rest and recovery. And the fourth thing is fostering shared purpose and commitment. And so in terms of the metrics driven to human centered, there's a few things we want to think about, but with psychological safety, we want to, number one, we want to think about how can we normalize making mistakes, right? So Mm. I just did an interview recently about like occupational health and safety and their mission is like a hundred percent, no mistakes. And I was like, I'm probably the wrong person to have this conversation, but I just think that's entirely unrealistic because as human beings, we are going to make mistakes. And so can we normalize that? Can we help people recognize, okay, most things can be fixed. If not, let's work together to figure out how we move past it. But we create these spaces where we expect people to be perfect. And we may not use those words, but the systems that we're setting up, that's what it's promoting, right? That you have to be perfect. You have to show up. You can't make any mistakes. So, so number one is normalizing that. And then the second thing is this idea of creating brave spaces. And I love this idea of brave space because I often hear the term safe space. And brave space actually comes from a poem by a woman named Beth Strano. And in the poem, she talks about how there is no such thing as a safe space for everyone, right? And so especially if you are a person of color or part of any other kind of underserved or marginalized group, there isn't necessarily a space that's going to feel safe. And so brave space is is something that acknowledges that, again, we're all human and we're all bringing our own trauma and our own lens through which we experience things into these conversations. And so we're probably going to mess up. And when we do, can we be brave enough to acknowledge that, yeah, you know what, I messed up and take ownership of that. And so part of this is with our teams, learning to create these brave spaces within our teams. So then again, people can show up and they there's a, a way to repair any harm that's been created. And then the next thing is adopting a beginner's mindset. So this goes back to the mindful awareness, but especially as leaders, I think it's very easy to fall into this trap of feeling like you have to know everything and that you can't say, I don't know, or, and because of that, we will often, I know that when I first started in a management position, I did this a lot where I would just push forward what all my ideas were because I was sure that I knew best and it was just easiest to tell everybody what they need to do and move forward. But a beginner's mindset is this idea that we approach each thing as though it's brand new to us. And what that allows us to do is it opens our perspective. We can start to see things from different places, different perspectives. And if we can invite others in that conversation with us, someone on the team may have an idea or a way of doing something that's actually far better than what we came up with ourselves. And so this beginner's mindset is really important. And then the last thing is this, what I I talk about story healing. And so part of this is creating story circles in the workplace. 
And a lot of times people are like, storytelling in the workplace? What are you talking about? But again, we are, as human beings, we're hardwired to tell stories, right? So this goes back to an evolutionary survival mechanism. Our prehistoric ancestors had to tell stories to survive because did those berries like cause that person to fall over and die or just over that hill is where that saber-toothed tiger is. And so we have been hardwired to tell stories and stories are what allow us to connect with each other. And so when we have like in our workplace, so for example, in my former workplace, we created something called coffee chats. And we did that during the pandemic. And it was just a space for people to come together. And we created like different themes. So for example, there was a lot of anxiety around like the uncertainty of the pandemic. And so we created coffee chats around that. We created coffee chats around grief or when people come back from a deployment, being able to debrief their experience. So any of these kinds of things where we can come together and sit in community with others and share our experiences. Number one, it normalizes what we've experienced because a lot of times, like for me, when I was experiencing the vicarious trauma, it was very isolating. I thought I was the only one and that created a lot of shame. And so when we hear that others are going through something similar, it helps to create that sense of common humanity with others. But it also helps to remove that stigma, right? So we learn to see each other on a human to human level, start to recognize like, oh, the things I'm going through, there's nothing wrong with me. This is a part of what I'm doing. And other people around me are also experiencing the same thing. And this doesn't have to take hours and hours. Ours, we set up to do 30 to 45 minute chats. And so it was an investment. But This is something as simple as you can do three minute, three to five minute story circles in like a staff meeting, right? Where people are partnered off or put into groups of threes and given a quick theme to talk about. And it's just something that allows us to connect on that human level. So again, we're not looking for an instant outcome, but really this is all like helping to contribute to that feeling of being safe on this team. So that again, in the future, when something happens, we've already created that space together. Yes, I love that. And I love that you can turn what your mission is about internally. We want to create those safe spaces for our clients. We want to create those brave spaces for our clients to show up, to make the changes, to share their experiences. But like you said, we need to create that on the inside too, so that people will show up for the workplace and be able to do the work together, feel safe together. And I love this idea of storytelling or coffee chat. So again, it focuses on the human first. Mm -hmm. And I love that idea of doing it in meetings where before you get to the agenda, before you get to all the to-do lists and action items and things that you didn't quite get to, you center on that human connection. And the innovation that'll happen in that meeting will be so much better because mm-hmm. people feel start with feeling seen and heard. And I know it's like on the Maslow hierarchy, that's one of our most, besides food and water and shelter, that is one of our most basic needs is to feel safety, to feel belonging and to feel significance. Yeah, and during the pandemic, that need for connection was, it actually moved down into the, usually they say those first two rungs of the hierarchy are the most important. So the food, water, shelter and the safety. And then connection is third. But during the pandemic, because we were so isolated, connection actually became a fundamental need. And that until that was met, we couldn't move further up either. Yeah, that makes sense. And from a scientific standpoint, there are like facts around loneliness and how 
it can be as detriment or isolation and loneliness can be as detrimental as cancer or certain diseases to mm-hmm. our mental and physical health. Yeah, absolutely. And the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has written a beautiful book about this epidemic of loneliness called Together. And it really goes into exactly what you're saying, that how loneliness impacts us and not just on a psychological level, but actually our physical health and well-being as well. Yeah, I'll have to check out that book. Thank you for the recommendation. And uh, I think also in your book, we're creating these safe spaces in our organization. And like I mentioned earlier, we want to show up for our organizations. And when you think of this concept of service before self, this often leads individuals to neglect their own well-being at the expense of showing up for their mission. So in creating these brave and safe spaces of storytelling and psychologically safe environments, how can we can leaders start to foster a narrative that encourages both service and self-care? And I know self-care has a negative connotation to it. I don't know if you have a better framework for naming self-care that is more approachable for people, but recognizing that it's really important to take care of yourself so that you can be more sustainable in your work. Yeah, absolutely. So I say that in the book too, that I think self-care has gotten such a bad rap because it's often associated with like bubble baths and tea, which are perfectly great forms of self-care if that's what works for you. So one of the things I talk about is we have to redefine what self-care means, right? So I like to think of self-care as basically resetting our nervous system. Because when we are dysregulated, this is when we need self-care the most. And so I I look at it as like self-care falls into six different buckets. And so it's it can be, again, mental, it can be physical, it can be emotional, it can be relational, spiritual. And so one of the things we can start to do, again, with that mindful awareness, is start to notice what is it that's actually depleted or what is it that's making my nervous system react right now? And what can I do to help calm it? So for example, I talk about practical self-care, right? And so practical self-care is if I am stressing out because of like money, then maybe a practical act of self-care in that moment is sitting down to create a budget. Or if I'm feeling overwhelmed because like things are just crazy in the house, then focusing on one corner and like taking 10 minutes to put stuff away is a way to calm my nervous system in real time. So self-care is really anything that helps you regulate yourself in real time. And so if we can help leaders understand this, then number one, we take away that idea that self-care is this luxury and that it's this. And I love the idea of building in what I call micro practices. So Ariana Huffington talks about this a lot, this idea of micro practices that we build into our day. So it doesn't, self-care doesn't have to take two or three hours, but really we can do things in two or three minutes. So for example, between meetings, something as simple as taking three deep breaths between each meeting is something that very quickly can help reset the nervous system. Or building into your calendar. I was just talking to a a former colleague of mine and she was telling me that someone on her team has started, every time a meeting gets scheduled, she puts in a five-minute buffer on each side of the meeting. So that, because I know from experience, I'm sure plenty of people who are listening know 
that it's very easy for the calendar to get booked back to back where you can't even go to the bathroom. And so these kinds of little things that we can do to just start creating space for ourselves. So these little micro practices can be just as effective. And especially when they build up, they're incredibly effective. And so we don't need to take a ton of time to do this thing. And so helping leaders understand that we can help our staff build these little practices in. We can lead these practices in some cases in meetings and things like that, right? So these story, three-minute story circles are a great form of self-care because we're helping people connect and connection is part of our relational well-being. So that's what I would probably suggest for that. I love this idea of redefining self-care. Yes, a bubble bath could probably help regulate your nervous system, but it's creating these like micro moments and I'm recording this course for people and I'm including these mindfulness moments because when you approach fundraising work, you're going to do my course and halfway through, you're going to be like, ah, there's too much to do. (laughs) But I think taking care of yourself and really focusing on regulating your nervous system and creating that space within your organization is a strategic imperative. Mm -hmm. Like how can you not want to do that? Because again, like I said, you'll unlock creativity and productivity and create space for people to do their work. And so I love this idea of not only taking time to practice this in your own work. And one of the practices that I like to do, especially when I'm feeling really frenzied or anxious is a grounding technique. So it's, Mm -hmm. what do I see externally and internally? What do I hear externally and internally? Like, what are my thoughts going on inside? And what are those beliefs that I'm having about this moment or my anxiety? And then being able to have that conversation in my head where I get to rethink those thoughts. Yeah. And then what do I feel externally? Do I feel my sweater on me? What do I feel internally? Is my heart, like, is my chest tight or is Mm -hmm. it expansive? And just taking those few moments to just like ground into the present then helps me be like, oh, I'm here now. I can focus and make that next step. Yeah, I love that one. And we, in the work that I do, we call it the five finger exercise. So it's five things, right? So five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can touch, two things you can taste, and one thing you can smell or whatever you can do it however Mm -hmm. you want. But to your point, it's perfect, right? It helps you get right into that moment. And one thing I do want to say about all of this though, right? For leaders especially, is that you have to do this work first. (laughs) You have to be able to start taking the time to integrate these practices and to create that mindful awareness, because the more that we do this for ourselves, the easier it becomes to support others in doing it. If we're not doing it, it doesn't matter how much we say, oh, we're going to support our teams. Like They're not going to do it because they don't see you doing it. I always refer to the book of Dr. Danny Friedland, and he talks about leading well from within. Your work starts with you and then your organization, and then the community. Exactly. Well, I've loved having this conversation, and I've learned so much about you. Is there anything else you want people to know about your book? I know it's launching in February, and this podcast will come out a little before when it's launching, and I hope that people will purchase it because you listen to this podcast. You're in for a good read. Thank you so much. Yeah, so the book is available for pre-order, so please go ahead and pre-order. And... I also have a companion podcast with the book. It's called Service Without Sacrifice, Conversations on Hope and Healing. So you can find that on any of the major podcasting apps. 
And I've got a newsletter and content hub called Dear Humanitarian over on Substack. So definitely find me there. And you can follow me on social media at Dim Story across most major platforms. So. Well, thank you so much for being here. It has been such a joy. Thank you so much for having me. If you have valued these stories or learned something from what you've heard, please share this podcast episode or follow me on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for your support. And together we can build a better community and world.